0: Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Curtis White, and we're going to be talking about his book, which brings together transcendence and the Dharma, two themes we have been speaking about for quite some time now here on the podcast. So it's going to be interesting. My first question is really not just about this book, but about uh, many of your books, which have great titles, and they're titles which speak to some of my my own interests. Lacking Character, The Science Delusion, uh, Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Uh, that's a great one, and this new one, Transcendent Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. So let's start off with the names of things. What is it that determines the topics you choose to write about?
1: You know, my orientation is uh, very much uh, because of where I grew up uh, in San Francisco area in the late 60s, Uh, well, that's when I came of age. I'm very much oriented toward the idea of countercultures. Uh, And it seems to me that Buddhism is, is in essence, a counterculture working against the stream of the world. But as for where uh, ideas, particular ideas and essays Come from, you know. I, what I've been telling people recently is is that I, I'm starting to believe in the idea of a muse. Mm-hmm. I thought I was done writing nonfiction. I mean, not, most of my books are fiction, but I thought I was done writing nonfiction social criticism with the last book, um, yeah, "Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed." And I thought that, well, that's my last statement. But, you know, it's like ideas for for essays kept dropping on me, uh, you know, and saying, you will write this essay. It sort of seems to me like a thing where after 50 years or so of doing this on a daily basis, reading and writing on a daily basis, you reach a point where you're sort of uh, in touch with the gods in a way that you certainly weren't at the beginning of your career. So, yeah. Mm. I like the
0: idea of a muse because, of course, I mean, where do these things come from, right? I mean, if you're a long-term meditator and you entertain the idea of this emptiness or this lack of inherent me somewhere, then mm-hmm. where does it emerge from? I mean, it's more or less a kind of mystery, and why not say it's a muse?
1: That takes a while, too. Only recently, really, in the last 10 years, I really familiar with what you're talking about uh, with regard to meditation and now I can just drop into it. You know, I don't have to sit there and, and sort of be irritated that I'm trying to meditate and eager to get off. Practically with the first breath, I'm in this space that the rest of my life didn't know anything about.
0: Hmm. Mm. Well, that's a positive. <laughs> right?
1: It's very positive. It's <laughs> weird. It's sort of as weird as thinking that a muse is delivering ideas to you. But, but you know, that's what uh, that's what. The idea of the transcendent or the idea of the beyond is sort of, that's the sort of thing that it's interested in, right? Yeah. Neuroscience can't explain to me why, after writing a book that I thought was my last uh, essay, started barraging me. Yeah. Can't do that. And it really can't explain my personal experience of dropping into uh, a deep meditative state.
0: Mm. Yeah and if it could it would probably be doing so in in terms that might not be so interesting yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we you know we have poetry and and prose for a reason which you know better than i do uh, so i want to say more about transcendence and its counterpart immanence but we'll come round to that in a short while in this book you do bring together art and dharma and its art in quite a, a broad sense Let's start with the the first section, delusion. Um, I picked up two, let's say, key concepts that emerge in that section, which are beyond money and then the database Buddha. So can you tell us Mm -hmm. something a little bit about those two?
1: This is a very unconventional book, and the essays vary in style and voice and form. The architecture of a given essay When I write essays, it doesn't feel different to me from writing fiction.
0: Hmm.
1: Each essay is a a formal, as well as a a spiritual, I suppose, investigation that will take whatever form it takes. You know, I never know. The the first section of the the book after the prologue is called Delusion. And it is, uh, I will acknowledge, certainly the most intensely critical, especially beyond the database, Buddha. I'm not an expert in anything. If I had to say, well, what, you must really know something and after all these years of practice, and the skill that I acquired as a as a student of literature is close reading. Mm. And so, I do a really thorough close reading of uh, a couple of books in that section. Let me let me say one one other thing about what kind of essays these are. First, I think they're literary essays because I'm finally a literary essayist, hence the varied styles. Uh. But the other thing I would say is that it's a Marxist ideology critique, a Western Marxist ideology critique in the spirit of, well, in the spirit of Marx himself, but also of Adorno Uh and Marcuse. So what I look at there is this confluence of um, neurodharma as it's called and in other words a, a understanding of dharma that is based in the sciences mm-hmm. and corporate dharma where employee stress reduction is the name of the game getting them ready to come back it also as i say helps the corporate brand if google can say we have this this buddhist search inside yourself institute and inviting all of these Leading uh, Buddhist thinkers to our conferences every year. In many ways, that's just an an attempt to enhance the brand. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, Google, they're that wonderful corporation that does Buddhism. (laughs) So it's corporation science. And uh, the other thing is the secular Buddhist movement, which I think is hand in glove with the other two, (laughs) in which it is denied, well, basically everything you think you know about Buddhism is denied. You can't start with the uh, the four noble truths anymore because those been done away with, creating a completely different notion of dharma that is rooted or based in the sciences, and uh, also emphatically denying any possibility of a Buddhist beyond another a transcendent Buddhism.
0: Mm. Yeah, there's quite a bit in there. Um, In terms of the secular Buddhists, because I think, I mean, we had um, Ron Perceron, we had a a chat with him about his uh, mindfulness book a few years back, certainly critiques the co-option of mindfulness practice and meditation more broadly by these big corporations, which you know, it seems like an inevitability in the end because it doesn't cost anything,
1: <laughs> right? Well, it, right. Uh, Google probably spends some money on it, and Amazon with its Amazon program,
0: right? But compared to what they're they're earning, I mean, it's it's basically nothing, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: But um, the reason you feel that it's inevitable is because this is not a new story. This is a story that's over two hundred years old, going back probably to the forming of the Royal Society and Newton, and certainly to Darwin and Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley, Mm. sort of later in the 19th century, where they basically said, if religion is going to exist, it's going to exist in the way that science will understand it. Otherwise, we don't think it should exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My feeling is that uh, this moment with corporate Buddhism, or neuro-Buddhism, or secular Buddhism, is just a continuation of that. Mm. history. It's not, And it's not just science. I think really that science, as Chris Hedges says, is, is in this case the handmaiden of barbarity, he said, but hand, the handmaiden of capitalism for sure. Mm-hmm. So the thing that makes it inevitable, one, is that history. Because capitalism and science don't like competition, oddly enough, for capitalism. Mm. And if they see something that they think is going to be ideological competition for them, express a a view of the world that doesn't have its imprimatur on it, then they will try to co-opt it. Thomas Frank had an interesting book in the 90s called The Conquest of Cool, in which he talked about how Madison Avenue had co-opted the counterculture. Mm -hmm. But the, the formula for that, that I'm very fond of, is basically... Capitalism knows that it will have enemies, but if it must have enemies, it will make them itself and in its own image. (laughs) I don't remember where I got that. I didn't make it up. But it really, to me, says it all. Mm, mm. That's exactly what's happening now with Buddhism. But you could also say it's what's happening with, uh, at least uh, over here, universities. Mm. You know, the corporate takeover of universities just keeps going and going. Oh, yeah. To the point where, you know, they're basically eliminating <laughs> the humanities altogether and telling philosophers that they need to work with the business school. Mm. There's Surely there's something, if we have to have a couple philosophers hanging around, uh, surely there's something they have to say to uh, the business school. Mm. But uh, I really do think that the the secular corporate scientific takeover of Buddhism is uh, much the same as the corporate, scientific, secular takeover of the university, and that's really tragic. Mm. That's one of the worst things I've seen happen during my time on Earth, is that the university, uh, or at least uh, the arts and sciences, went away.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I'm English, right? So I grew up in England, and therefore, American culture always hit us pretty, you know, pretty soon before it started to slowly spread across uh, Europe, diluting itself as it went, which is a good thing. If you think about some of the changes taking place there, some make their way to Italy, but they're always diluted at that point, and they've lost some of their force. So the kinds of Buddhisms that you and I might be more familiar with have never really settled much here. And the universities are still resisting to some degree. But uh, I think the good news is, is that there is always resistance, right? There's a natural tendency for for humans to resist the overbearing thrusts of history. And there are a lot of people who don't accept this well, I don't want to call it watering down because I'm quite skeptical about the idea of an authentic or true Buddhism. I would rather say, right. uh, you know, Buddhism's in the plural. I think the, you know, the academic world has gifted that yeah. to us, that recognition. And I think that should stick. Yeah, I have no problem with that. At least for me, you know, I've, I've uh, interviewed Stephen Batchelor as well. And, you know, he's an interesting guy. And I I, I share some of the critique of secular Buddhism out there for sure but maybe perhaps from a slightly different perspective. And again, it will link to a question I'm going to bring up slightly later on. His overbearing critique of Tibetan Buddhism and Vajrayana Buddhism, you know, is obviously connected to what you were saying before about the yeah. fact that, you know, scientific Buddhism doesn't really want to hear about all of that irrational transcendent stuff. That,
1: yeah, especially Padmasambhava. Right, <laughs>
0: yes, sure. I mean we could probably run off a quick list which would never enter any kind of conversation with a more scientifically orientated Buddhism but I think they're missing out on a huge lot by doing that but that's fine let's do this let's jump into the next question because this idea of a world that no longer exists also connects to what you just said about the university Mm -hmm. I think Transcendence, or our desire for it and our resistance to it, our need for it and our yearning for it, has a lot to do, right, with the the nature of what continues, what is present, and what might come. So you have got this chapter right, which is before the epilogue, and is living in a world that no longer li- uh, exists. And there's a line I'd like to read back to you from it. Okay. It says, "If you live long enough, you will see the human world into which you were born disappear."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: now I'm not as old as you I'm just 46 but uh, events are what they are and I, I guess I feel a little bit older than I should be and that resonates with me quite strongly especially I think as we live in a kind of hyper real period of human history in which the speed right. of things is is shocking right? shocking mm-hmm. on many levels can you talk to that a little bit what's your relationship with that reality as a practitioner and perhaps from the perspective of a practitioner and a meditator
1: well for the buddha there's no surprise in it. All right some people have reduced buddhism to the idea that everything changes mm. everything flows nothing stays nothing has a you know a sort of uh, self identity so i said that in the essay buddhism has this sort of two truths idea that uh, there's a conventional truth and then there's a an absolute truth and the absolute truth is that there's no reason to be surprised if your world is disappearing everything is disappearing all the time from the conventional point of view where in the world of form rather than the world of emptiness yeah it matters a great deal but um it's not easy to say why it matters so much because that's one of the fundamental problems of buddhism right it is saying well if there's no self, well why why bother to have an ethic And that's, you know, an ongoing question for anybody who practices Buddhism. You know, where do you draw the line between the conventional and the absolute? And how do the two mix? Of course, the Heart Sutra tells us that they do indeed mix, that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. But it's still, you know, hard to wrap your head around it, being a human being, you know. Then there is still, I think, something sad, at least, about personal experience of the world that they were born into changing so radically obviously there are lots of things that we should be happy to see gone but there are other things and uh, the arts for me and philosophy are two things that i'm very sorry to see going and also the counterculture the possibility of countercultures i should say Uh, it's sad to see that going
0: so how do you sit with that in your practice
1: well like I say you know it's it's not it's not easy to wrap your wrap your head around it it's a I don't think it's an enigma but it is something that I think I will surely spend the rest of my life contemplating mm. and I think contemplation is the right word I mean it's meant to be contemplated you know you can't ha- you can't come to a a certainty about something that's saying there are, there are no certainties right
0: well, even certainty what is it right if you investigate it <laughs> what does it mean to be certain? Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. And you know, it's not that I'm anti-science because I love to read uh, popular science books. You mm-hmm. know, I'm not a mm-hmm. I'm not a scientist or a mathematician or anything anything like that. But I love to read books about geography and, of course, physics and usually popular adaptations of that kind. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems to me that the that science's problem is basically that it doesn't notice, say when. It doesn't know when to say good enough. Because what I want to hear science say with relationship to the transcendent is not that it doesn't exist at all, but that it doesn't know. Just Mm. that. Mm. We don't know. Is there some kind of beyond? Is there an afterlife? We don't know. Is there something called consciousness? Is there something called the mind? Is there an original mind? God save us. I think they should say, don't know because that would make them an awful lot like Buddhists. <laughs> For me, Buddhism is the don't know religion. Mm. <laughs> Although
0: there are plenty of Buddhists out there who do seem to know a lot.
1: <laughs> right. But, but there's also plenty of Buddhists like, uh, well, Ajahn Shah was very fond of saying, taking questions from his students and saying, mm, mm, not certain. Mm. Mm. Don't know <laughs> everything, but <laughs> for him was a, a matter of uncertainty.
0: Yeah, I think I'd be cautious about speaking about science as a kind of entity.
1: But I hear,
0: you know, obviously, you know, of course, I, I hear you. I just think, as an intellectual discipline, it's quite useful to avoid that.
1: Uh, one more thing. The, yeah, please. The thing that I've always said is that I'm not opposed to science. I'm opposed to science ideology.
0: Right. Yeah. Isn't that called scientism?
1: Yeah, I suppose.
0: Yeah. I think epistemic humility, right, this this right. position of, of entertaining doubt, it it's a tricky one. I mean, you want to talk about things which are difficult for human beings to accept um but really, you know, come to terms with or develop a, a meaningful relationship with. Epistemic humility is tough, I think especially as well in a in a culture like, you know, the American culture which is so fixated not just on you know, it's entrenched capitalistic values, but also it's its vision of itself, right, of mm-hmm. can-do and achieving things and going out there and making it happen. It's, you know, it's transactional at root and therefore everything that emerges unconsciously out of that kind of drive, the American unconscious drive, is inevitably flavoured by and driven by that kind of need, right, to produce, yeah. to be effective, to be productive and to get somewhere with a very, very specific purpose. And I think the kind of space you need, both internally but also culturally, to give rise to a healthy form of epistemic humility, or that that doubt, mm-hmm. is, um, is much easier said than done, and it takes a hell of a lot of maturity. Yeah. yeah. I guess some of us are striving for that, but Maybe the future's not American, Curtis. Maybe
1: <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, and I guess some some people listening will start to say, well, what's going to replace it and will it be worse? Yeah, who knows? I guess it's up well, to us to the, some degree. Well, that's
1: the theme of the day in the, yeah. in the national press. The international press is a, a multipolar world, you know, where mm. it's not just the United States and its allies. It's uh, China mm. and Russia and the...
0: Don't forget Europe. Maybe Europe can do something useful too.
1: Europe is usually thrown in with uh, you know, NATO and the United States, but uh, I, I, I'd love to see a really independent Europe.
0: Yeah, uh, there could be some interesting developments taking place in Europe in that direction, but we'll see, we'll see. Um, okay, so let me dig out my next question for you so we stay close and intimate with your text. Let me stay a little bit longer with that chapter, uh, which was one of my favorites, actually. There's a nice James Joyce quote in it. And, you know, I can't, I can't give up the opportunity to mention Joyce because I live in Trieste in Italy, which is where Joyce lived for several years. And we've got his statue just around the corner from uh, where I teach.
1: Ah, lucky you.
0: And uh, I think this quote, actually does relate to what we've just been saying which is that it's is pertinent to a you know world that is saturated by speed of change mm-hmm. and the kind of tension between terror regarding imagined futures but also something you must be very aware of this overbearing presentism which seems to have gripped all of us with our attention yeah. spans right so the right. quote is the following and we'll see if any listeners know it I will not serve that in which I no longer believe, whether it calls itself my home, my fatherland, or my church. Is Joyce only speaking for you about America here, or Buddhism, or another master that we haven't spoken of yet?
1: It spoke to two things, at least. Uh, one, my love of Joyce. And, uh, and the second is, uh, it's a very, in spirit, a very countercultural thing to say. Mm. And for him, what's on the other side of not living through those institutions, as much as they bore down upon him and every Irish person of of the time, and probably today, as much as they bore down uh, upon him, this was part of why he left Ireland, was uh, to free himself in a very physical way from the institutionalized pressure of... uh, Dublin in particular, but Ireland in general. That's what his uh, book of short stories, Dubliners, is all about. If you read those stories consecutively, each story is about the failure of a person to escape. (laughs) And as you go along, they get closer and closer and closer to escaping until you get to the last story, The Dead and Gabriel Conroy. And... uh, Conroy is the closest to succeeding and leaving, but in the end, you know, he's looking out the window and and looking at the snow. Is general all over Ireland. They're being buried. The title of the story is "The Dead," and that snow is the burial of the dead. So he was quite emphatic about Ireland as death and life for him, and what he saw as the way to life was uh, through the arts. Hmm. Yeah, he understood the artist as uh, the high priest of the imagination. And he thought uh, he saw himself as a writer, uh, as somebody at a uh, godly remove, tearing his nails while whatever havoc was going on in the story went on.
0: Interesting. If I remember correctly, um, he actually completed the Dubliners uh, whilst living in Trieste. So that's an interesting connection as well yeah yeah, and started work on a book I've never read, but I guess you have, which was Ulysses
1: with each reading of it, uh, a, a lot of questions get resolved mm. and b, the book becomes deeper and more deeply and deeply human. Mm-mm. nice. Uh, the last time I read it, uh, it was I was just so moved, emotionally moved by what uh, uh, he was providing for us. Of course, there are chapters that are still pretty close to unreadable but in the, in the main you know the story of bloom and uh, Stephen, in particular that story is just deeply moving especially in the last scene you know uh, the two of them are looking up at molly bloom's window and pissing together <laughs> in the dark but there's something intensely moving about that i mean so, some of it is sort of ironic the the pissing towards the window certainly is, but that even that can be explained. But Joyce was the maker of counterworlds, just like Buddhism is. Well, that not just like.
0: <laughs> well, they, they share in their humanity, right? Right, Isn't right. that the point where we can actually yeah. meet each other, including, right. you know, these figures, uh, real or imaginary across history? As a word that comes to mind in, in listening to the way you described your relationship with that text, which... Very nicely bridges to another quote uh, you use in the book, which I want to uh, move on to. Um, the word is intimacy. It's mm-hmm. a word I appreciate very much. It's not a very fashionable word these days, but it it has so much depth to it. Just to again resonate with what you were saying, and you bring in a, a quote from Dogen as well, which is that enlightenment is the intimacy of all things, and. In many ways, you know, we kind of honor our ancestors by being intimate with their things, right. such as their texts, right? Right. And the ability to appreciate each other, you could argue, is is an act of something quite sacred. It is a form of transcendence right. from the kind of the monotony yeah. of the familiar, right?
1: The quotidian.
0: The quotidian. You know, part of the consequence of modernity and the science uh, you were critiquing beforehand and secular life and the kind of refusal of transcendence, or or I would argue the the reluctance to re-engage with its consequences in, in both its potentialities and its absence, is that we have this increasing spread of uh, alienation, which has obviously been intensified through mobile phones and the internet. And it's interesting because that alienation, in a sense, is, you, you could argue, and maybe this is something you'd agree with, is forced upon us by the scientification of all aspects of human life, and we could even add to that the um, the desire to politicize every single corner and aspect of human life, right?
1: right? So
0: whether you know it's the father figure of God or the rugged wild earth or our sensual body and alternative communities, uh, whether they be counterculture or otherwise, you know, they all become forces that are counter to the prevailing mood of the need to always be on online. You know, hooked up, connected and productive. And I think, you know, Dogen is also a reminder that, you know, to counter such alienation Mm. is probably a kind of human must, right? Maybe it restores at least some sense of the natural order of humans being, you know, animals in a living world. Yeah. How do you how do you see art and Dharma possibly helping not just you and i but even this new generation which seems more alienated than ever to yeah. discover something like intimacy
1: let me let me say something about alienation uh, and then i might ask you to ask that question again because it's an sure. important, important question but the the concept of alienation is the is one that i associate mostly with marx but uh, three important figures in my intellectual and spiritual development, the Buddha, Marx, and also Nietzsche, all begin with the premise that we are not who we are, and that the the whole purpose either of spiritual or political or philosophic uh, movement is to become who you really are. For Buddhism, that is, of course, to discover your Buddha nature, but in Marx, I suppose it's more like human nature, and in Nietzsche, it's to become. Everybody should be becoming uh, godlike, really. In the way that he puts it, is an is a doable aspiration. I think. Ask me that question again. Sure.
0: Although you know, I'd be tempted to challenge that idea of what, who you really are. <laughs> it's so rich, even in the Buddhist world, the the idea of that question being answerable is a funny one. But uh, the question was as follows. How do you, or do you, is it possible, I guess I could phrase it a number of ways, but let's keep it as it is, how do you see art and dharma possibly helping the newer generations to discover intimacy in a world so hell-bent on alienation and superficial forms of it?
1: I quote Coleridge in the book saying that the whole point of poetry is uh, to tear up what you think you know, to tear up what you assume about conventional reality, toss it in the air, and begin again. To me, that is a, a fundamental the fundamental spirit of, of art. A lot of people think of art history as being the history of uh, evolution of style. Mm. So, you know, you have the Impressionists followed by the Modernists, followed by the Cubists or whatever, you know. But it's just, it's safely relegated to to uh, the evolution of style. But yeah. really, it's uh, the same gesture over and over, which is the artist claiming the right to life. Yeah. The Buddha, you know, said, basically, he would said, come away. Come away with me. It'll just make a new world in the community, the Sangha. And I think that's not unlike what art has always beckoned in the West. It hasn't beckoned to... Everybody, obviously, but you know the, the Buddha almost he tried to refuse to teach, and then a Brahma approached him as he was about to go back into the forest and, and sort of said, "You know, master, there are some people who only have a little dust in their eyes, and they're the ones that, who need your teaching." That, that's kind of a division between, you know, the different human realms, you know, on the wheel of life. There are some that are hungry ghosts, some that are animals, some who are hell beings, or the the god, the demigod. But there's one realm that is the human realm, and that's where, and that's where you know the Buddha can teach. I certainly wasn't a Buddhist when I started undergraduate work at the University of San Francisco back in 1969. But what I do think that my decision to be a, a literature and philosophy major was a way for me to turn my back. On the world as it stood, Thomas Merton and his The Seven Story Mountain tells exactly the same story in a way that just shocked the hell out of me. Um, he says basically, when he decided to study literature in college, it was his first gesture toward joining a monastic order. Huh. For me, it felt a lot that way, although it didn't have anything like Merton's consequences. But it just sort of said, you know, I, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm not. In, I'm, I'm poor, but I don't mind being poor. It seems to be working okay. And so uh, I'm just gonna do this because I think it has more to tell me than if I just think about a career or a vocation. And so it was really, for me, a, a turning up my back on everything that the world told me I should be doing. Principle of which, at that time, was I. <laughs> the world seemed to think I should go to Vietnam, which definitely wasn't happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your choice of Buddhism. So Zen has its own stories of intimacy with nature and art as simplicity. Yet Vajrayana Buddhism, it could be argued, has the most extravagant artistic forms. So have you ever been drawn to its graphic portrayals of transcendent forms and its uh, intimacies of deities and embrace passion?
1: Oh, I love that. I've got Tangas all over my study and uh, Avalokiteshvara and uh, Manjushri, and I have the Wheel of Life. So, yeah, Tibetan art is fantastic. I love it. You know, I have a, a teacher that I like over here named Kitasaro, uh, and he, he has an online Sangha that I go to regularly. He did a, a week long study once on Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. You know, a lot of the people in the Course, we're questioning him about, well, you know, what kind of claims are you making for the reality of of Allah And he says, I'm not really making any claims, but I will continue to speak of her in the way that I do, because it harms no one, and it helps me. So I think in the West, any exaggerated claims about the reality of what is depicted in Tibetan art, will be met with some skepticism, but I would be surprised if uh, Tibetans didn't do something of the same thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They're human after all, just like us, right?
1: Yeah. Human after all. Yeah. (laughs) All too human, as Nietzsche Nietzsche would say.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's more than just uh, a bumper sticker, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the sort of literalism that defines so much of our inquiry about these, these oddities of history and artistic expressions is testament to a lack of imagination more often than not. You know, it's the same with the Catholic Church. You know, if you look at, you know, my surname is Irish, O'Connell, my grandfather was Irish, and my mother put me in a, a Catholic nursery for a couple of years before giving up on the whole idea. And I certainly, as a Brit, grew up with a rather negative view of the Catholic Church. But in, in living in Italy for quite a long time now, it's almost 20 years, you know, at some point you have to kind of give up your geographical, cultural arrogance and say, you know what, maybe there's a bit more going on. Right. I think it ties in with that idea of epistemic humility. You know, arrogance has many faces to it. It's not. It's not just self-importance, but it's in many ways the unwillingness to descend into some form of intimacy with alien worlds right. and i think that if you have the courage to do that and the 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 kind of patience to commit to that kind of relationship it turns out that you know even something like avalokiteshvara or these deities or the deity practice in itself is not just the idea of worshiping an abstract god it's right. actually in itself i would suggest an invitation to develop intimacy with an archetypal form, which right. can change you.
1: An intimacy with your own compassion to begin with.
0: I don't know what what would be your own compassion. I mean, that's some, that goes back to where we started, perhaps the mystery of where anything comes from. I mean, right, exactly. Who's compassion?
1: <laughs> right. Well, that's you know the Brahma Viharas. and it's something that I I accept because it meshes with some of the most important personal experiences I've had. But I do mm. believe that. Uh, that I have a, a fundamental nature, uh, a true nature. Mm. And I'm discovering it more and more the longer I practice. But the idea of uh, you know meta practice says, uh, in the last 10, 15 years, my whole attitude towards meeting other people has radically changed. Now it's much more informed by meta, which is to say, I like the, the better translation is not kindness, I think, but uh, the warmth of friendship. Mm and i find myself now so much more open to people and it's as if the warmth of friendship as a part of my my true nature I, has been sort of revealing itself i'm becoming in your word more intimate with who i really am because i love meeting people now <laughs> and and brother that it has not is not how it's always been
0: yeah that's Go directly at this word, or this concept, or this experience of transcendence. Okay, it's in the title. We've kind of navigated around it through the conversation so far. Just a bit of background about this podcast. We've been discussing and thinking critically about transcendence and its partner in crime imminence for years now. Um, and uh, that discussion has been informed by conversations with philosophers and Buddhists, Buddhist teachers, practitioners, and writers. We've heard about Nietzsche. Nietzsche's been quite a few times to the podcast through uh, his disciples, as has Melu Ponty and Heidegger, uh, as well as the Kyoto School and others. And in many ways, um, you could argue that it's a core theme throughout every conversation we've had, right? To what degree is imminence the way to go? And to what degree is transcendence the way to go? And if you accept that they are companions, to what degree does one inform or contain or pull back, you know, the other? And I think that the two are present in the idea that we are truly something or not truly something. And, you know, I don't have a problem with people saying they have a true nature or not. I think for me, though, it sits a little bit differently, Curtis, I see it as the kind of fundamental paradox of what it means to be human. We both are and we're not. And I kind of think that the interesting place, at least ultimately, is the tension between those two points. To what degree is this absolutely everything, right? And there's nothing Mm -hmm. after this. Or we are kind of performing a game in which there is something which is far truer than something else that has to be cultivated I do know this, that um, in the deepest places of meditation, I both find nothing <laughs> and something which is profound and far greater than, you know, the mundane everyday self. So right. that's, I guess that's where I'm at with it. But how would you respond to, to all of that?
1: I come at the idea of transcendence. I mean, basically what I want to say is transcendence is, is that it's a very ordinary thing. Oh. In fact you couldn't get through a day without it and i mean that in the sense that we are walking creatures of metaphysics as much as science will not like to hear that or philosophers of science at least because every day we feel we say we act in a way that is a demonstration of love love for your children love for your spouse I especially love for pets oddly enough when someone says uh, you know I love my dog the wrong thing to say is that's stupid a what is love and B why would you love the dog but it's not stupid at all and the other thing is I would say beauty you know whether that means the beauty of a of your garden or the the beauty of something that you've made uh, or the beauty of art but neither love nor beauty can be uh, can be defined and yet it's hard to imagine a life that is human without them. I call that everyday transcendence. And I, I think that, you know, our daily lives are kind of magical in that way, because we live intimately with these, in some ways, outrageous ideas that there is something that it could be called love that isn't just an expression of the imminent, that is to say, of your biology or your DNA or whatever, producing this marvel. We actually have a very ordinary faith or unshakable confidence, as some some might <laughs> prefer to say, in those qualities. Yeah, I say, yeah. <laughs> the second kind of transcendence that I talk about is social transcendence. And that has more to do with, I think, the idea of freedom. But again, freedom is one of those, to use a Freudian term, is an emotionally cathected term. You know, we're riveted to the idea of freedom, but we don't know what it means. It's that simple. But damned if we'll give up on it. You know, that's one of the things I really love about uh, uh, Hegel in particular, is that his idea that there is something called spirit that is not, as usually expressed, is not floating over the world in some way and dictating history. Spirit is always has his word is content. That is to say, it's always lived. So freedom for him doesn't exist, or spirit doesn't exist beyond how we live and how we think. And of course, I say this because uh, he has a number of words that he uses in the place of spirit, but the most common one is freedom. We all are yearning after this thing that we don't know quite what it is, but we keep trying. This, this Beckett expression that I think is, that Zizek in particular likes to apply to Hegel, which is that we fail we're striving for something, we're striving for freedom. We fail, we fail again, but we fail better. And so, Hegel's dialectic is really about pursuing that logic of trying and trying and trying to realize something that is probably not realizable, but that nonetheless has a sort of transcendental authority. The third way that I talk about transcendence in the book is is actually mystic transcendence. And um, my... My favorite uh, explicator of a mystic transcendence is uh, William James and his uh, Varieties of a Religious Experience, in which he says to the materialist skeptics, he says, look, not all of them are mad crazy either. People have been having mystical experiences since the beginning of human time. Why aren't you more interested in the experience itself rather than in pathologizing it, saying that the experiences related to us by people who were, for example, speaking with the dead. There was a Netflix, uh a series of Netflix things about the experience of mediums and talking to the dead, et cetera, in which there were, in fact, scientists doing studies about it all. And you know, their the conclusion was basically that some of these people are frauds, obviously, but a lot of it is inexplicable, especially the experiences of that children relate of earlier lives, past lives. At any rate, those Hmm. are the three ways that I talk about Hmm. transcendence in the book, and I think, ultimately, those three ways are one.
0: It's good that you mentioned Hegel and freedom, because the last question uh, I have for you really is about freedom. You have a, a section entitled, It's Not About You, right? Right. Anybody listening attentively would have picked up on on some of the themes and inspirations and points of reference that are important to you, uh, from Marx to the counterculture and so forth. But perhaps we can say a little bit more about that anyway. I think that it in itself is a core and fundamentally necessary counter to the kind of Buddhism that you've been critiquing and that we have also been critiquing uh, throughout the history of this podcast this kind of turning everything back onto the self all right the right. individual that is somehow self-made and can use whatever practice they like to make themselves better people more effective workers etc etc which as you no doubt are fully aware is is a great way for defining or updating this concept of spiritual materialism that and mm-hmm. trump became famous for a concept and a term i think that's kind of gone out of fashion or been forgotten about by a lot of buddhists but should be brought back to life and uh, made made current right i'm trying well you're not
1: the only one <laughs> uh,
0: if freedom's not about you well what are we doing here
1: well freedom's not about you in part because uh you don't exist outside of the community you don't exist outside of the relationships you have with other human beings with the animal kingdom all the minerals and chemicals that go into making up your body, there's a really healthy sense in which we should realize that we don't exist, that we don't have self-existence. In the United States in particular, uh, in capitalist culture, it's all about, you know, my freedom is the freedom to deploy my property in any damn way I see fit which is the most destructive concept I think in the history of concepts beyond mm. maybe a, a a warrior culture that says you know, my freedom is, is to do whatever I want and kill you mm-hmm. and take whatever you have you know they're sort of the Agamemnon's of the world
0: yeah let's give a final plug to your book so for those listening to the conversation that have enjoyed Curtis's take on such a wide variety of themes and uh, the book really it reads as a book but uh As Curtis was suggesting, it can also be read as a series of interconnected essays on transcendence, art, and dharma in a time of collapse. And it's out now, if you wish to read it, on Melville House Books. Curtis, thanks for giving up your time and all the best with your your book and the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, same to you, man.
0: This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality and religion. Much of what I have specialised in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice yes, the scary quotes are out there don't be shy come on out of the closet and be proud we'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of Seriously, I mean it I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too as well as meditation and for the more adventurous folks I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools, and concepts, and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, If you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.